0: Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual
1: goings-on in the charity world.
0: And this week we're discussing how charities should handle negative coverage in the national press.
1: Would you believe me if I said I was actually thinking about chatting about this topic this week and then literally almost as soon as I decided to do it two perfect examples dropped into our laps.
0: Serendipity.
1: Yep, exactly. Lucky for the podcast. Not quite so lucky for the RNLI or the National Trust, who are the two charities at the centre of these stories.
0: Exactly. So to help us explore this topic further, we're going to be hearing from Celia Richardson, who is the Director of Communications at the National Trust, and Arvind Hickman, news editor at Haymarket's sister publication, PR Week, who does a very snazzy podcast of his own.
1: And as ever, we'll be bringing you our weekly Good News Bulletin, which is the working title for the coronavirus care package as ever. If you've got better suggestions, hit us up. Maybe we'll just change it every week, you know? I think so. Every week, something different. don't know about you, Emily. I feel like there's been a real progression in how charities respond to negative coverage since I've been at Third Sector. Um, so I joined in 2015, which was the summer of the kids' company scandal at Olive Cook, when there was a lot of news about fundraising practices in particular, a lot of public anger, which was to an extent whipped up by the press i I'm not going to say that there were no concerns there with the Olive Cook scandal because I think that there definitely were some issues and there have been a lot of structural changes made as a result. I do think it's interesting as a side note that for all the outrage at the time, very few people outside the sector can recall the Olive Cook scandal now. I don't know if you've tried asking anybody the name olive cook. I' don't, you weren't working in the sector at the time were you were you conscious of olive cook uh, of the Olive cook scandal?
0: Absolutely not. no, and it's only something I heard of after I started working at third sector, yeah.
1: But in the sector at the time, there was kind of a sense of shock, I think, this idea of, but we're charities, we do good, why are they going after us like this? And that's not to say there'd never been any negative press about charities before that. And I'm sure kind of heads older and wiser than mine can can talk forever about scandals of, of days gone past. But it did feel like there was this level of really loud, sustained criticism that charities just weren't used to. And I think there were a few kind of initial attempts to sort of dismiss the coverage. And, and then it started to sink in in the sector that, hang on, maybe we are getting things wrong here. And I do kind of think the sector got used to that for a bit as a strategy that a negative story would come out. A charity would apologise and explain what has led them to this and promise to conduct a review and to learn lessons and do better next time. And I just definitely think there was a tendency for a long time for charities to just keep very still and hope the newspapers went away. And I think in the last few years, that narrative has started to change. In 2019, we had the RNLI story where first the Times and then the Daily Mail kicked off about the Royal National Lifeboat Institution spending 2% of its income on teaching kids in Bangladesh and Tanzania how to swim. And the RNLI, rather than going, yeah, we realise we've upset people, we're really sorry, went, yes, that's true, we do that and we're not sorry, why would we be? And initially, it seemed like they were screwed. Like People on Twitter were saying they were going to cancel direct debits. Then people began to rally around and they ended up getting a surge in donations as a result. And since then, and I'm not saying it's solely because of that story, but I do think in the last few years, we've seen more charities perhaps being more willing to stand up to negative press or certainly to weigh up what's being said and either say, that's not the case, or actually, yes, we don't see a problem. And I spoke to Celia Richardson earlier on this morning and she kind of disagreed with me on that, which I thought was was interesting. And I, I guess what I mean is not that charities feel completely comfortable to just, you know, nail their colours to the mask and they, the, the coverage doesn't affect them. But I do think there's kind of more of a sense of weighing up of like, is this fair?
0: What do we need to do about it now uh, than perhaps they used to be? And that brings us very neatly onto the stories that we have seen coming out this week. Right. And I think it's really
1: interesting that both of these stories involve organisations that have been in this position before. It's not their first rodeo. And I do wonder if that has had an impact. So Emily, tell us about the first one.
0: Yeah, so cyclical, a very cyclical story. This week, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution was once again forced to defend itself in the media, this time against accusations that it has become, quote, a taxi service for illegal immigration. The search and rescue charity drew criticism over the weekend after some newspapers published images of its lifeboats returning from saving people who had been attempting to cross the English Channel to the UK. It was suggested in reports that entering French waters to save lives was not the charity's responsibility. Nigel Farage, the former UKIP leader and seven-time failed parliamentary candidate, posted a photo on Twitter of the Ramsgate RNLI lifeboat full of refugees. And he said, quote, Sadly, the wonderful RNLI in Kent has become a taxi service for illegal immigration, to the dismay of all involved. What a state of affairs. His story was subsequently covered by newspapers, including the Daily Mail. Um, But... The charity defended its actions and said it was incredibly proud of the humanitarian work its volunteer lifeboat crews did to rescue vulnerable people in distress. Many social media users also defended the charity, including one who said that the last thing the charity's crew should have to put up with is racists <laughs> angry that they did their job. Others have said that they would donate to the charity as a result of the negative coverage. The RNLI was unable to say whether it had seen an upturn in donations, but said it had been overwhelmed by supportive messages. In a statement, the charity said, Where we believe there is a risk to life at sea, we will always launch. HM Coast Guard and the Irish Coast Guard can request any of our lifeboats to launch to an incident. The charity said we are not border control. And once a rescue is complete, we hand over responsibility for casualties to UK Border Force and or the police. Our charity exists to save lives at sea. Our mission is to save everyone our lifesavers are compelled to go to those in need without judgment of how they came to be in the water. They have done so since the RNLI was founded in 1824. And this will always be our ethos.
1: So yeah, hats off to the RNLI then for just taking absolutely no prisoners and, you know, not putting up with any of this. And I know we've had conversations about swearing on the podcast and about politics. uh, So I'll try and avoid one of those. Um, But I think, I really don't understand how anyone is okay to say loudly in public that they truly believe that a charity that saves people from drowning shouldn't save people from drowning if they have the wrong skin colour or nationality or paperwork. Like, How do you hear yourself think that and and not realise that you are a cartoon villain in a human being costume? I, just, ugh. Anyway, hats off to the RNLI and their comms team. Keep saving people and keep telling people you're proud of that.
0: I love your cartoon villain in a human being costume <laughs> analogy. It's one of my favorite Rebeccaisms. <laughs> um, but I completely agree. I think so many people in the sector view the RNLI as as the class act of crisis comms. And, you know, you were talking about joining third sector in 2015. I joined third sector in 2019. And the first big crisis comms thing I ever saw was the RNLI. And they, they set this real gold standard, as far as I was concerned, for how you engage with these... Um, you know, with these reports and with these criticisms. And I think what is remarkable about them is that they just reiterate what they do in the plainest of terms. And simply by doing that, they make all of the people protesting it look like cartoon villains in human being costumes. It makes their arguments look ridiculous and, you know, thin. And we covered it. uh, The first issue of our rebranded magazine um, November 2019, the first big cover. It had the RNLI on it, and I think, you know, I'm going to go and tweet that cover again after we've done this and the story, because it's the same. It is the same story all over again, you know. And they are, they just, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know how to put it. I just think they are so, they're so fair, they're so measured, and they just, they just go out and say what they do. They do what they do what it says on the can. And every time this story rears its head again, the people who, you know, are writing these reports and the people who are making these complaints end up looking patently ridiculous.
1: Absolutely. And I'm I'm very suspicious of my sort of slightly journalistic tendency to, to put narratives onto anything. So I don't think that this was the turning point in charity sector comms or anything. But I do think so. We had, after that piece came out, we did do a charity sector, kind of one of our briefing events on crisis comms. And Isla Reynolds, who was the head of comms at um, the RNLI at the time, um, and was very much the forefront of, of the response to that story, was speaking. And People were just in awe of her. Like people were fangirling over her in this kind of "oh my god, how did you do it?" way that was quite incredible. Like I think people really were charities, really were sort of amazed and 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 you know pleasantly surprised by by the fact that this was possible, that this kind of act was possible. Um, and also, I'm not sure if this is a quote from Isla or somebody else at the RNLI, but I have I have seen sort of people talking about it recently as a really good quote, which was that the RNLI's kind of ethos or, or thinking with their comms is you can't PR your way out of a situation that you have behaved your way into.
0: I saw that,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's so good, right? Like, if you've been behaving badly, you you can't make that better. But also, if you've been behaving in a way you're proud of, like, yeah, that's... Stick to your guns, stick to that. And I think that's a really, really good ethos. So, our second story of the week involves the National Trust, which has asked for a retraction and complained to the press regulator after the Spectator magazine published an article containing what the charity said were plain ludicrous allegations. An article headlined Fear and Bullying at the National Trust by Charles Moore was published in the Weekly magazine and, according to the charity, contained a number of false claims. So the article says that an anonymous trust employee said job candidates were asked for interviews how they voted in the Brexit referendum and were rejected out of hand if they said they voted leave. The article also claims that the charity recruited its, quote, LGBT allies to spy on people. I think that might be a dog whistle in here. I'm not clear. Um, <laughs> the article received a sarcastic response from the charity's social media account. And this has since been deleted, um, the the National Trust social media account came in back and said, "Sorry for the delay. We were flushing someone's head down the toilet with all the bullying and that. These allegations are without evidence or foundation, and uh, and some are just plain ludicrous. Now please excuse us. We've got to go pinch someone's lunch money." Eek. <laughs> I had two reactions to that tweet. One was to snort the tea I was drinking out of my nose. Right. No. Um. The other was just abject horror. Like, this is funny, and I see where they're coming from. But given that we've had so many horrendous allegations of bullying in the sector in recent months, like being this flippant about it and equating workplace bullying with this kind of ridiculous playground caricature is probably it's probably not it. It's probably not the way to respond to this. And I think it is tricky. Well, it was quickly
0: deleted. It, it was quickly deleted, wasn't it? So I, I suspect that someone within the organisation also recognised that this was probably not it. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, Twitter Twitter is for life. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, and it's tricky because you do see, you know, increasingly we're seeing brands being very snarky on Twitter and kind of really winning praise for that. And obviously charities have to you know, behave and think in a slightly different way. But again, uh, Celia Richardson that I was talking to earlier was really compassionate about this actually and kind of, you know, really praised her social media team. And I thought actually it was, a, it was a phenomenal response from a boss. It's not just anything of just like, yeah okay. it happens um but it, you know in a subsequent statement, the charity described the allegations in the article as without evidence or foundation and said some were plain ludicrous, so again, that complete denial and, yeah. and they said we've asked for retraction from the spectator. We would not ask anyone about their voting preferences in any job interview. We have clear standards for all our staff to uphold on political neutrality. It is ridiculous to suggest that LGBT allies are recruited to spy on people um. And effectively, they've made uh, a complaint to Ipso, the Independent Press Standards Organization. We approached the spectator for comment. They didn't respond. Um, So yeah, so this point about Ipso, so the editor's code of practice, which is part of Ipso, um, which is, you know, something journalists are supposed to follow. It clearly states that- We're
0: familiar with it. We're familiar with it. We're familiar with it,
1: yes. It clearly states the press must take care not to publish misleading or distorted information. And yeah, and I think this is the thing that I think I almost found myself writing the script, I sort of thought, actually, I need to make a bit more of a plea for my industry that kind of, you know, journalists don't always behave like this. We're not. But and, and, and this this idea that negative press coverage is always terrible, or journalists have an agenda, or they're always out to get you is, you know, is not true, and is unfair, and, and doesn't really help our job, particularly. Um, but there are times when you look at something and you go, that isn't true, or that is just blatantly, it's poor journalism. Um, you know, this isn't what we're supposed to be doing. And I suppose much like, you know, charities have to accept where they've got things wrong sometimes and that it's possible for charities to get things wrong. I think journalists have to accept that, you know, other journalists get things wrong sometimes. Yeah. I said other journalists. Then us, obviously, we're perfect.
0: Um, yeah, of course, we're untouchable. Um, yeah. we're not. Yeah. Um, by no by no stretch. But
1: yeah, you know, yeah, journalists are human beings. We're not this big kind of you know
0: the media sort of scary thing that the monolith that would become in people's minds i think the least trusted profession i think out there next to footballers possibly i haven't actually looked at the trust barometer for journalists
1: oh yeah every every time <laughs> every time that stuff that survey comes out charity's like oh my god we're below politicians and, and you're sort of like yeah okay but journalists are still way way down below you guys i wouldn't
0: i wouldn't worry too much like yeah go way down into the depths of that index <laughs> and you find journalists hovering around the bottom never mind But I feel like we talk about the National Trust quite a lot on this podcast, especially in the last year, largely because they have had so much negative and frankly, silly coverage recently. Um, You know, for anybody who hasn't listened to the podcast before, uh, if you hadn't heard in October, the outgoing chair of the Charity Commission launched a frankly bizarre attack on the charity, uh, accusing it of straying from its mission because it had published a report on the links between the properties that it oversees and colonialism and slavery.
1: Right. So as we said, this isn't the first time they've experienced this kind of coverage. So earlier this morning, I caught up with the charity's director of communications, Celia Richardson, to find out what she made of the latest coverage and how the National Trust has dealt with the onslaught over the past year. I started out by asking her when she first became aware of the Spectator article.
2: Well, I read the press cuttings every morning. Uh, I always pay attention to the Spectator, even though it obviously doesn't appear with your national cuttings because it's influential. Spectator stories get reproduced elsewhere. Um. I would say we get a lot of media coverage at the Trust. The vast majority of it's supportive, and we've had both criticism and support in The, in the Spectator. What I'm on the lookout for is new stories that will catch on and get repeated. We know journalists mm-hmm. pay attention to other journalists and, and stories take hold really fast. It's so easy for this to happen if you don't challenge the ones that you think are unfair and incorrect. So I think, you know, start with good faith, which is, can we put this right? Um it usually you've got a couple of hours if, if a story appears in print. Um, you've got a bit more time if it's on a website, on a national, before it goes to print. But if you're going to challenge something, do it early. Call other people you think might report on the story and explain that you're challenging it. So just, you know, if you're going to do rebuttal, do, do it before a story takes hold. So, you know, we look at the press cuttings in the morning for a good reason. You have to respond in the morning.
1: Mm, no, that makes sense. And I mean, so you weren't asked to comment on that story before... It actually went to press.
2: No, not as not as far as I'm aware. And usually we you know, usually people who are writing about us, whether they're disagreeing with us or agreeing with us, they, they do give us a right to comment and we, we, we hadn't heard anything about that story as far as I'm aware.
1: That's not good. That's not great. Um so yeah, so when you're sort of you've seen that story and what do you weigh up when you're deciding how to respond?
2: Well, I think the thing that you have to weigh up is, is it fair comment? Um, journalists and commentators, uh, they're entitled to their opinions. It's their job to have opinions. Um, and I think sometimes charities are surprised um, or they can, you know, get, get very, oh, I don't know, have a really strong emotional reaction um, when they're criticised. And actually, you know, charities do benefit greatly from the free coverage we all get. And it won't be all plain sailing. Civil society organisations need to take their place in public debate. So I would challenge something if you you have to look at the technical rules, really. Do you think the editor's code has been broken? The editor's code is quite straightforward. You can go and read it on the Ipso website. Um, It says the press must take care not to publish misleading or distorted information. Um, And importantly for me, on this occasion, the press must clearly distinguish between comment, conjecture and fact. So... You know, as I say, we've had quite a bit of... We've had a lot of coverage in the last year, some of it negative. We've heard the views of lots of commentators and the public about some of our work on colonial history. Um, And in most cases, comment, in fact, have been distinguishable. But if a news story is being created, and this did look to me, to us, like a news story that was being created, saying that we asked job interviewees how they voted in a referendum five years ago... (laughs) and that we recruit LGBTQ allies as spies, well, that that, that was going to be a new story. Um, the opinion of an anonymous source, if it's indistinguishable, you know, it, it, it's about that thing. Is it being presented in a way that it's indistinguishable from fact? Is somebody's opinion being presented as fact? So, you know, I think the important thing to remember is that thing, it once a story's out there, a print article becomes the source and gets repeated. So, you know, the characterization of allies as spies felt like a new accusation that could really just be so difficult. You can see how incredibly difficult and unhelpful that is, not just for us others in the sector, if if it became a thing mm. and went unchallenged. Um, and it felt that we had to challenge it.
1: Um, so you did challenge it and you, you've asked for a retraction. Have you had a response from the spectator on that?
2: Uh, not as yet as oh, wow. as far as okay. I'm aware.
1: Interesting. Um, so, so, yeah, so obviously, the, you know, you've kind of issued this response saying it's not true. There was also that tweet. Tell us about the tweet and, and how that came to be.
2: Oh, well, um, all. I, what I'll say about Twitter is this. Social media is where a huge amount of the pressure uh, publicly is brought to bear on an organisation today. Mm. Um, you know, it... <laughs> I'll also say that everyone in our social team has acted in good faith. Um, Our Mm. social media team are very, very good uh, and they work well with our customers and commentators. Every so often something real happens in the social media sphere outside the more controlled environment of a press office or your web channels. If it's genuine... It can change the way a story is told and the way people understand it. It it can really help you get across what's really going on here in in a way that something that was contrived couldn't. Um, Hmm. These things can't be contrived. It doesn't work that way. I don't want to say much more other than that our social team's bursting with talent. We've seen brilliant stuff from them recently. Um, Check out our Pride thread on Twitter from the 28th of June if you want an example of how creative and clever social media teams can be. I'm dying to see what they can do in the future. And yeah, ours is absolutely brilliant.
1: Oh, brilliant. I will link to that in the show notes as well so people can see that on the story on our website. Um, brilliant. Um, so, obviously, this hasn't been an isolated incident for the National Trust. You've had quite a bit of negative press coverage over the past year or so. I mean, even before that, I seem to remember seeing a piece in the Times a couple of years ago that was outraged because one of the shops, one of the National Trust gift shops, had changed its recipes for flapjacks to make it healthier. I don't know if you remember that. It was
2: a few years ago. Yeah, of course. And, you know, it's a privileged position being a national institution that people have views and opinions about. The Trust has always had a certain kind of story told about it, as you just mentioned. It used to be called, back in the day, it was called political correctness gone mad or we were trying to be trendy or bandwagoning. Um, so, you know, this is it's not new for us. I think what's really important is As I said earlier, our media coverage, it's independently monitored at the Trust. I'm happy to say that the negative coverage has only been a fraction of all that's been printed and broadcast about us. It's common for us in the sector to follow the disagreements and debates, but they're not the whole story and You know we talk to members, we talk to the public, we talk to our visitors they're not really paying attention to these arguments, and it you know we've got this thing what happens if if we if we get into one of these arguments is we'll often get people in on Twitter or so go woke, go broke that sort of thing. you know this hasn't affected our membership you, you well, it's It's unhelpful, of course it's easy for people to say, oh, the national trust's been losing members because it's it's done this thing actually organizations like ours have lost members when we've been closed and now we're in growth again. We've had three months of growth. So it's important to put this stuff in perspective. Um, negative coverage is, is hugely important for us all. It, it does such a lot of heavy lifting, free media coverage for our organizations, and it delivers stuff that money literally can't buy, so I would never disengage. I think what's really important for organizations to remember is if you want the free media coverage, sometimes you're going to have to accept that you'll get rough with the smooth um I think organisations can get shocked when they're attacked reputationally and actually comms is an industry the way that we have, you know, in charities, we have lawyers and we have accountants. You need to rely on your comms people and, and understand that this is some of what they're trained for. They're watching the media and understanding how it works. And you need to put your faith in them. So, you know, the National Trust, it's a big, well-managed institution. It has been really awful to see our associates attacked in our name. And they've done a brilliant job of engaging openly and positively. Although, of course, you know, some would really want to switch off. Um, negative press isn't always a terrible thing. It can really help you understand a debate and it can help you have a debate. You can't decide how the media is going to receive your story, but you can put it out there and just keep engaging with people. You know, we're pretty sanguine. We've We've always responded to unfair comment. We'll always continue to do so institutionally it's just important to put it in perspective and as I say you know we've had gorgeous tv series lots of broadcast and print coverage we we couldn't live without engaging with the media so so doing it on on the right terms every day is something that 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 we keep doing and as I say you know organizations it's hard it's really hard when when organizations feel as if they're under attack and I will say you know there are some insurgent groups who who are there to attack you reputationally. That it, you know, there are some people who will, will disagree with a particular stance that you take on a particular policy. You know, So for years over the trust, it's been things like hunting or a corporate partnership. We entirely respect that, and it is part of the life of an institution at the moment, I think we're seeing these, these, some, some sort of anonymous and more anonymous campaigners on the internet who, who just seem to, to want to destabilise the organisation and constantly call for everybody's resignations all the time. And, and, and they've got a, a particular agenda. It, it's different from when people genuinely take exception to what you're doing and, and want to comment on it.
1: No, that makes sense. And, and it feels like you've got a lot of kind of perspective on these sorts of issues. Has that, is that something that's developed over time? Like, has your response to these sorts of stories changed? And have you learned to handle them differently as things have gone on?
2: Well, I think, again, it's, it's putting them in perspective. It's ensuring that the whole organisation understands how they work. So that, you know, people are literate about, about what's happening and, and they, they, they don't, you know, panic too much or, or you know, and you do have a handle on, on the important stuff. Like, is it affecting your support? is it affecting the you know the, the public trust in you so we do track that stuff quite a lot at the moment you know as i said we used to have these stories about us being politically correct or trendy and now it's called woke and it's it's difficult you know the accusations of wokeness that it's impossible to to defend against what what do you say the word woke has positive origins but it's it's mostly used pejoratively now it's hard when you switch on Radio 4 and you hear phrases like, oh, the National Trust's so-called woke agenda on, on Broadcasting House. It, it is difficult. Char- Charities mm. are there to provide public benefit. The accusation that we're trying to serve one strata or community at the expense of another, you know, that that can be divisive. Um, so, you know, what's changed in more recent times is, as I say, we we do sometimes have these insurgent internet campaigners who, who are there to cause trouble um, and, you know... I think it's it's what they're often doing the moment at the moment is that they they're characterizing our work as political. That's worrying I have to say it's essential that civil society mm. organisations maintain their political neutrality. You know we have to be politically neutral we work hard to stay politically neutral which is one of the reasons that, that you know we, we, we got we, we saw what was happening with this idea that we we care whether you leave or remain or that you vote leave or remain in our employment mm. we have to be really careful about that because charities do have to stay neutral they can't get dragged into politics well there's, there's politics and there's party politics right, right? absolutely yeah. and and that is difficult and as I say we, we do have some of these internet campaigners that do seem to have a political agenda they have have, seem to have some political now and money behind them, and and they're accusing charities of of being political, uh, and 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 saying you must be apolitical while while they seem to have a, a relatively distinctive non party but nevertheless political agenda behind them. As it, hmm. our response is to rebut early, you you just have to do it early. I'll I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, we announced our chairman was stepping down in October. He'd shared this news internally weeks before. But just before our announcement, one of these internet campaign groups said he should resign because of something to do with that inverted commas woke agenda. It's not it's not why he resigned. But one of the nationals did report this as cause and effect, that our chairman had resigned because an internet campaigner had said he should. When the truth was he'd served two full terms. The newspaper version from the night before then appeared in the BBC's paper review. And then the next morning, the BBC created a political package about it that I heard on the 6.30 radio bulletin. Now, we press-released the story that our chairman was leaving. We were the primary source. I knew the BBC had our press release. But instead, here they were reporting on what a newspaper article had said. That seemed unfair. I called the news desk... I explained the error, I explained what they, you know, how they were inaccurate and they dropped the package. The editor took my request on board. He investigated, realised that they were they weren't really following best practice. So you need to get your point hmm. across early if you're going to stop an inaccurate story taking hold. And actually, you need to have a bit of faith that it's worth doing and that you probably you, you you might well get a fair hearing from journalists who do have codes of practice and and are usually working in good faith. But this, you know, the National Trust woke agenda, this this kind of story that that it takes hold, it it's so easy to get into a loop and the story keeps being repeated and repeated. And the woke thing, it's just it. it's very, very difficult to deal with because... You know, woke, woke as I say had positive connotations, and it you know very very difficult. That's, it. That's a, a bit of a Gordian knot of a situation.
1: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for the shout out for my industry. <laughs> um Yeah, which is yeah, it is the sort of thing that as a journalist you look at this and you go, I can't believe they wrote. Why have they written that? um But yes, also yeah, there
2: are human beings that you can talk to at the well, end. Well, yes, I mean um, I, I, I I like journalists. I trained as one. I'm, a, I'm married to one. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't believe though they're all there to do a bad job. And I think working with them. On their own terms is is part of your job as a communicator so understanding how they work and what they do and when to call a news desk is is important
1: and on this this idea about charities kind of coming back and correcting things and do you think that charities are feeling more confident in standing up to negative press coverage than they might have been previously
2: no (laughs) i don't okay it it does feel as if we're under attack a lot at the moment that's quite Mm. cyclical For years, there were a lot of negative stories about charity fundraising specifically. I I don't know whether you were in the sector Mm. then after Olive Cook died. yeah, Um, A lot of work was done in this area to regulate and explain to the public how fundraising works and charities got together to sort things out, but it took some time. But there was a structural issue there that they could address. A lot of charities were under the spotlight again at the moment Uh, charities and public service organisations are being attacked for a range of things, but, you know, so are the royal family, so are lots of public figures and brands. There's a pandemic on, there's a lot of division in the nation, the the culture wars are here. We can expect it to keep happening. I think you know, the important thing is to make sure that negative media doesn't unduly affect your institution. Make sure people are literate about what's happening and why. Um, and, you know, manage those media relationships with openness and willingness to engage. I, I don't think that, that we're standing up to, well, I don't know. Is it about standing up to negative press coverage or or is it about making organisations more resilient um, to, to this and understanding, you know, what happens when people disagree with you and, and what are you going to do about it and having those mature debates internally.
1: And yes, yeah, so we've you've definitely, I think, uh, everything you've said has been packed with some really interesting advice. But is there any other advice you would offer charities in that situation?
2: Uh, well... Try to remember that, you know, things pass. Uh, try to remember that one commentator or Twitter campaigner is not the whole of the media. Try not to give in to negative self-talk, either yourself or in your team or in your organisation. You know, be charities have friends and supporters and I think trying not to blame people when things go wrong media attacks are part of the territory they need to be treated with the same faith in the skill knowledge and good judgment of your press team as I said earlier as if you had a legal or financial problem and the lawyers and accountants would be trusted to to sort it out this is what media experts are employed for so we need to step forward and do our stuff Mm. if you work in professional communications your organization will never need you more than when you're being attacked um, you know, I'm very grateful at the trust we've got very skilled media and social media operators because charities need them, but they don't always know that until they're pushed. And you know, reputational attacks do unfold very quickly, so you know, important to fix the roof um you know, before it's raining, and working. Working across your industry and in your sector to understand what's happening and why and how to deal with it couldn't be more important. So having a good network, being able to call people, always being able to call a professional communicator outside your organisation and say, am I am I in this now? Can I not see something really just important? So it's all the old stuff that that we all know. But, you know, having a network talking to people in other organisations who do the same job as you, really important, um, and relying on the good judgment and, and skill of your colleagues, uh, you know, in, in the face of what, what feels organisations react emotionally to reputational attacks. And, and, you know, sometimes you need to use a bit of intellect and a bit of learning and, and you need to use a bit of, of good, good strategy. Brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Celia there was some really interesting points about um, sort of thinking about how you challenge it, about kind of putting this sort of coverage in perspective, about getting in there early and about really thinking about how you can work with journalists to correct anything where there is a willingness to do that. I also spoke to Arvin Hickman, the news editor at PR Week, about this story and how other charities should tackle this kind of coverage.
3: I, I thought the Twitter response was a bit of a mistake. Trying to use sarcasm against such serious allegations, it doesn't really work on social media and it can only trivialise um, how serious some of these allegations are. And uh, I think they should have taken you know, a far more sensitive and serious approach on, on social media. Um, I, I think in terms of reporting it to um, Ipso, if they haven't had any luck with the spectator um, going through the usual means of, of contacting journos and editors, um, it's perfectly reasonable for the national trust to report this, if it's something you know, these these are really really serious and and quite potentially damaging claims.
1: Hmm. And how often do you see organisations dealing with media stories they believe to be not just unfair but you know completely untrue?
3: I mean, I think it happens all the time. Basically, um, any good comms team will try to deal with untrue or misleading uh, misleading statements um, with the media particularly if, if it's serious and potentially damaging. If it's not so serious and, and, and not not really damaging, um, and they, they might try to get the article tweaked. Uh, part of the problem here is that if you try to deal with claims that aren't that serious, you end up giving them more oxygen. Mm. So there's, there's a bit of a balance to, to be um, struck here. I think with the National Trust claims, absolutely. Um, they should absolutely um, deal with it. But something that's a little bit less serious, um, you know, try to deal with the journalist, try to deal with the editor, but just be a bit careful going on social media and and making this much bigger than what it is.
1: But and so when this does happen, how successful are organisations in getting apologies and retractions generally? Is that something you see happen often?
3: (laughs) Yes, um, it it does if whatever's been reported is completely untrue, inaccurate. Um, But the problem with this is that the, you know, the apologies um, don't tend to come out so much later on in the piece, and mm. stories kind of moved on a bit. So yes, yes, we do see it quite often, but I, I don't know how much of an impact it really has. In terms of um, ipso itself, the last annual report they had in 2019, they had 621 complaints that, that ipso investigated. Uh, 42% of them got resolved, and that included 8% of the complaints being upheld, 11% mm. resolved via mediation and 23% uh, resolved between publishers and complainants. So, you know, that, that's why it's about half of them. To be honest with you, it's not that common for organisations to report this to Ipso.
1: Okay, now that's interesting. And so what do you think is important for organisations to bear in mind when they're dealing with kind of negative or even hostile press more generally? And and do you think that the, it's a different kettle of fish for charities versus sort of profit-making organisations?
3: I, I think the first thing is to, you know, don't be too flippant and, and mm. get the tone right when dealing with the media, especially on social media. Um, there have been so many examples of social media responses that get the tone and messaging completely wrong, and mm. that often makes matters much worse. Um, if you can negotiate with a journalist or an editor first and, and quickly, that's always a much better approach than going on to social media. These, these crisis issues need to be taken seriously, and they need to be scaled up to the most senior comms operator within the organisation. I honestly don't know if it is more different for charities than profit-making organisations, but I would say, you know, companies are much more likely to have experienced comms and crisis management experts to lead on this mm. and respond. Smaller charities may be at a disadvantage, and less, you know, less ethical media outlets may take advantage of that purely because they just don't have the resources.
1: Mm. And yeah, just as, as sort of background, so it turns out the National Trust, uh, the uh, spectator did not ask the National Trust for a uh, comment before they published this, and they still haven't responded to the National Trust saying this is complete, this is untrue, uh, which is, I, I think, astonishing, actually.
3: It, it is, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's anonymous sources not it. So
1: yeah, I can't
3: believe that you haven't gone to them. That's it's pretty shoddy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, as a journalist, you're sort of you're sort of torn between this kind of, well, journalists do their best and then going, they've done what now? Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks very much for joining us, Arvind.
3: Thanks for having me, Rebecca.
1: Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, previously known as the Coronavirus Care Package, a good news story we've spotted in the sector. Emily, what have you got for us this week?
0: Uh, so I have an update to a previous Good News Bulletin slash care package story, um, which is that Max Woozy, who is the 11 year old who has been sleeping in a tent for more than a year to raise funds from North Devon Hospice, is going to sleep out at London Zoo to raise awareness of an annual fundraiser for Action for Children. Yes, yeah, so Max has been he pitched a tent in his parents garden and has been staying in it throughout, I think, almost the entirety of the pandemic. Extraordinary. Um, so Action for Children arranged for Woosie to pitch his tent near the lion's enclosure earlier this week to promote its boycott your bed sleep out, which encourages people to sleep in an unusual location to raise funds for the charity. The event, which takes place on Friday, the day this podcast is coming out, has been going for more than 20 years in various forms. So Action for Children also said that London Zoo has agreed that Max can carry out activities, including helping keepers to care for the zoo's Madagascan ring-tailed lemurs, animals that he one day hopes to be able to see in the wild. Max began sleeping out in a tent in his garden in March last year, after a neighbour, who later died of cancer, gave him a tent to have an adventure in. His ongoing sleepout has so far raised more than £530,000 for North Devon Hospice, which supported Woozy's neighbour during the final stages of his life. Max said, having slept in my garden for 459 nights, I can't wait to boycott my bed at London Zoo with all its incredible animals around me. It's going to be fun and I can't wait to hear them in the early hours, particularly the lions who are my neighbours for the night. I'm hoping I will hear them roar loudly near my tent which I say to Max, swings and roundabouts, like, you know, whatever floats your boat. Uh, would I like... Oh, no, I'm really jealous. I think this are sounds you? amazing. Yeah. I think there are two types of people in the world. The type who want to sleep next to a lion and the type who would rather just sleep in bed. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's for me, but, you know, massive respect to Max. Sleeping in a garden for 459 nights is one thing. Going and doing it surrounded by uh, some very powerful predators is another. But I hope that his uh, overnight stay was a great one and that it helps Action for Children with their boycotting of the beds on Friday.
1: We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it.
0: Until then, I'm Emily Burt.
1: And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guests, Celia Richardson and Arvin Hickman, and to our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio.
0: We'll see you next week.